Hello everyone, Rakeeb here. Welcome to a special edition of Broad Science. I recently had the pleasure of chatting with a few organizers of Black in Euro Week, which took place online from July 27th to August 2nd this year. Following the success of Black Birders Week, which we covered on episode 7 of our audio distancing mini-sode, you should check that out if you haven't had the chance, many in the neuroscience community wanted to mobilize a similar experience of belonging and support. Black and Neuro created a space to increase visibility of Black neuroscientists and those in neuro-related fields, and to celebrate those individuals and their often overlooked contributions. It was another international success, amassing a following of over 15,000 people around the world. Black and Neuro organizers created a centralized repository of almost 400 Black and Neuro profiles from around the world, resources and opportunities for various career levels. The week itself was a jam-packed conference from panels and a journal club about the historical and present systemic racism within neuroscience and health research, to multiple roundtables about mentorship and outreach. It also included hundreds of people celebrating and sharing the artistic expression of those in the community with Black Neuro art. And even the kiddos had some fun, Skyping with Black neuroscientists and learning about their research. Some kids even won home EEG kits from Backyard Brains that will allow them to measure the electrical activity of their brains at home. I'm not gonna lie, I'm low-key jealous about this, even though I work in an EEG lab. And disclosure, I'm one of the Black and Neuro organizers, but regardless, I think my feelings are totally valid. (laughs) Black and Neuro Week ended with a wonderful and joyful dance party, no better way to celebrate the success and newfound community that many of us never had. By the way, every single speaker and contributor was paid because of the sponsorship that the team worked hard to get sending a clear message that Black people's time and expertise in this space should be valued and not volunteered. Here's the kicker. All of this was organized in three weeks. So how? In the next hour, you'll hear organizing members chat about how this all came together, their experiences in academia, their incredible research, and the future of Black and Neuro. Okay, hello everyone. So we're here with Black in Neuro organizers. We have how many here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight. Um, that is a lot, but it takes uh, a community to put what has been put together and, and do it well. So before we get into the, the week, we're here with a bunch of really cool researchers, first and foremost, who are doing incredible science. Um, and so can you all tell the listeners who you are, what you do, and why you love doing what you do in research. Paige, let's start off with you. Hi friends, so I'm Paige Greenwood. I'm a fifth year neuroscience doctoral candidate at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, where I study the role of socioeconomic status on reading ability and brain function for school-aged children with reading difficulties. I love the work that I do because we are really making a difference in the lives of children who may be, you know, 
inhibited in their academic environment because of their reading ability, whether it be in their attention or their working memory or phonological processing, whatever it may be, we provide interventions to be able to improve the academic environment for these children. So that's why I love what I do. Anything with education and helping little babies reach their, their goals. Hi, I'm Liesl. And I am a mechanical engineering PhD student at the University of Central Florida. Um, although I do mechanical engineering, um, my research focus is actually neuromechanics, which is the intersection between neuroscience and biomechanics, which is actually my background. Um, I have a master's in biomedical engineering with a track in biomechanics. So the reason why I love what we do in our UCF Brain Lab is um, we are looking to expand on the science behind human movement um, by studying and approaching rehabilitation therapies, for instance, from the perspective of neuroscience. Um, and and up with building on this knowledge, we can contribute to the knowledge base for um, things like BCIs, prosthetics, exoskeletons, um, and, and that's why I love what I do, because in efforts of all of this, the end product means that someone gets uh, the help that they need to be able to move again. And, and that's such a powerful thing. And that's why I love what I do. So, hi, I'm Angeline Dukes. Um, I am a fourth year PhD student at the University of California, Irvine, and my research focuses on assessing the long-term effects of adolescent exposure to nicotine and cannabinoids. Um, so really what this means is we know that teens are smoking cigarettes and smoking weed, and my research is to understand the long-term effects of that. So how is their brain going to change? How will that affect their later drug-seeking behavior? Um, this is just really important, especially with all of the e-cigarettes and the vape pens that I'm sure many teachers are um, used to confiscating in classrooms. And so we really want to know, you know, as they're using these things, how this will affect them later on in life. And why do you love doing what you do? I love it because I feel like I'm actually contributing and so making a difference. And this is research that's really important, but also I like that it's easy to explain. So when I go to K through 12 classrooms and talk to kids about it, they understand, like they know someone, you know, who smokes and um, they want to know how this is going to affect them and um, what they can do maybe to like help them either quit smoking or maybe so they don't pick it up in the first place. Hey guys, I'm Deshane Murray. I'm a second year PhD student at Imperial College London, and I am in the field of neurotechnology. Um, now, if I'm talking about why I like what I do, uh, it's partly to do with just if you've ever been in a, a clinical environment, especially a neurocritical one, and you see essentially lifeless patients um, who are essentially clinging on for life, um, that in itself is just a big driver for a lot of the work that I do, just knowing that um, the neuromonitoring and the devices that I'm actually making could potentially really inform on the treatment and potentially the outcomes that they have. Um, so, yes, yeah, it can be a very emotional thing. Uh, a lot of the research that I do uh, is actually in based in the clinic. But, um, yeah, that's really what drives me. So neuromonitoring, uh, fabrication, all of that, bringing it together and really trying to improve um, those outcomes for patients. Hi all, I'm Dr. Kayla Singleton. Um, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Emory University. I'm also a DSPAN scholar and a first teaching fellow there and an adjunct professor at Agnes Scott College in the biology department. 
Um, my research focuses on understanding how the brain develops in pathological and in normal states. And one of the reasons that I love neural development research so much is because I think that the formation of an individual neuron or the nervous system is really similar to the formation of a successful, happy, productive researcher and scientist in person. The brain is controlled by intrinsic factors like genetics and DNA that guide cells, but also extrinsic factors like contact-mediated changes. And when I talk about the development of my students or the development of my classes or my scientific processes, um, they're controlled by similar aspects where those intrinsic factors are someone's personal identity. So my identity as a black queer woman shapes how I view science, how I live my life, and the choices that I've made. So my choice to attend an interdisciplinary program for graduate school and an all women's college for undergrad, they come together to create me as an individual. And so that's why I love what I do because I can draw the parallels between my science and the students that I'm hoping to help. Hi everyone, I am Tiago Arzua. I'm originally from Brazil, but I am now here in Cole Cole, Wisconsin in Milwaukee doing my PhD at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Um, I also study neurodevelopment and never dawned on me how many of us study kind of like early neurodevelopment. Um, my research focuses on fetal alcohol syndrome, so what happens to a fetus or a baby when the mom drinks during pregnancy. Um, my research is for a good portion of it is highly unfocused, like in a good way. Um, that's what I love most about it. So I do stem cell research. I do um, I jokingly say that I give baby mice drunk. Um, I also do some computational work, uh, studying like very deep mechanical or deep mechanistic studies. Um, we do a little bit of everything. So like, I love how I've been like dabbing on almost every subfield in neuroscience. So from stem cell to like computational hardcore stuff, um, it is very, very challenging because we are a small school in a small lab. So like we actually do all of these things, um, but it's also very rewarding because we learn so much and we're able to like kind of connect to all the different people. Um, so it's very, very challenging, but very rewarding. And we are hoping to get some like new exciting data on fetal syndrome to hopefully have like a better um, protection against fetal syndrome in general. So Obviously, we already know the cure for this. It's just don't drink during pregnancy. Um, but we know that that's not enough. And we should have like better care and better uh, prospects for the people who either drink and didn't know they were pregnant or any other cases that might emerge. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Um, I'm an undergraduate neuroscience major at the University of Texas at El Paso. And right now, I'm doing cancer research, breast cancer. and it's important to me because black women are some of uh, the people that have the highest rate of breast cancer. And also throughout our lifetime, probably everyone here either knows someone that has had breast cancer, that has survived breast cancer, um, or has lost someone via breast cancer. I hope to start working a little bit more on neural projects, but we'll see what the next year has to come for me. Hello, everyone. My name is Tier, and I am a, I don't even know what year this is, uh, candidate, um, PhD candidate in biomedical engineering at Michigan State University. And our uh, lab looks at bio, um, 
looks at brain computer interfaces, but in particular looks at formed by response to brain computer interfaces. So my project in particular looks at um, reactive astrocytes because astrocytes get upset and they become reactive and they activate calcium channel expression and they encapsulate these probes. And the special thing about probes is that they communicate with neurons in tetraplegic patients to allow them to regain like functions such as like arm, leg, hand movements that they've lost previously. Um, this technology is very, very important because it has a lot of potential. It can not only um, help people regain the function that they once had, but there's implications of using um, implantable probes or microelectroarrays to help with um, pain management, to help with mental diseases, um, to help with Alzheimer's, dementia, and seizure patients. So the the potential for this device is very, 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 very important. However, the device only lasts for a few years. So my role is trying to look at if I can try to minimize the form by response of the brain to these probes, um, and particularly stop um, astrocytes before um, becoming reactive and encapsulating the probe, and allowing these probes to uh, hopefully last more than a few years since they have to undergo invasive uh, brain surgery to, to use them. Okay, so... I don't think this is just me, but having everyone talk about what they what they're doing and how applicable it is, and and basically going to save humanity. I didn't really realize th that everyone was doing this. I I think we were just so caught up in organizing that I just yeah, it's taken me off guard. You guys are all incredible, so thank you so much for sharing uh, your research. And before we get to this week, I want to know a little bit about how you have perceived and experienced your, your time within the academic space. Um, so I know this is a, a heavy question, and apologies for that, <laughs> but what has this space up to this point been like for all of you? I have always really loved science and I've always been interested in the brain and my experience as an undergrad versus a graduate student were very different. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's really possible to prepare black students or students of color for that experience all of the time, for them to really understand and internalize what it's like to be the only black person in a space, the only black woman, the only black queer person in a space. Um, and so my journey has been filled with a lot of struggle, a lot of gaslighting, a lot of racism, a lot of micro and macro aggressions. And I think for me, most importantly, a lot of lost confidence in myself that I had to build back up over time. And I did that through having successful mentors or good mentors rather, um, and through really trying, really unlearning how to stop shrinking myself to fit into a mold that wasn't made for me. I'm a deeply self-aware, reflecting kind of person, so I take the challenges I experience with a grain of salt in a way, where I'm appreciative of them because they've taught me a lot, but they also did a number on me emotionally. And if I hadn't have earned the fellowships and the awards that I did earn, there's a really good chance I would have left graduate school and become like a wedding planner or something uh, a little easier. Um, 
And so it's just, I really want to emphasize how hard it is to exist in spaces that aren't made for you um, and spaces that don't see you, but also how rewarding it is to kind of be on the other side of that in some way and now be actively trying to make those spaces better for them to be more inclusive and more supportive and acknowledging of the intersectionality of everyone's identities. So I, I can speak a little bit on this. Um, so my experience is somewhat similar, but it differs in a way because I spent um, the last few uh, years of my life trying to conform to spaces and changing aspects of myself so that I would be more likable, more professional, um, just fit into the space. And, you know, I have the privilege of doing so being a black biracial woman. And um, that means I have light skin privilege. So um, I would straighten my hair and try to be more white passing in the spaces that I existed in because those spaces were designed um, for white folks, essentially. Um, and then, you know, it messed it messed me up emotionally and, and mentally as well because that meant I was erasing half of my identity. Um, so I was living um, my life in academia, um, just, and it's a little hard to talk about, but just not being my entire self. And, and, and I feel like this is just my experience. And, and there are a lot of uh, black students and black faculty in academia who experience it way worse than I do. Um, and I guess my mission here is to take my little kernel of an experience in academia and try to make it better for everyone else as well, just like uh, Dr. Singleton mentioned. So um, it, yeah, it's just, it's been difficult. And then not to mention, you know, I, I'm coming from an engineering background and in, in a lot of ways, it's not just racialized microaggressions that I experienced, but also gender-based microaggressions. I, I mean, um, down to sexual harassment, not being taken seriously. It's, it's been tough. And um, I can definitely relate to if it weren't for the fact that there were one or few, uh, one or two advocates out there rooting for me and actively providing me with the tools I needed to succeed, I think I would have also quit um, and, and gone for a different uh, career path. So um, yeah, it's been difficult and I can't stress enough how, how important it is to have an advocate um, just because the space isn't designed for our success. Yeah, just to co-sign what Lietzel said, like this space was definitely not designed for us at all. Um, I started my science journey at a historically black college where I had finally started to Hampton University, shout out to Hampton. Um, I had really started to come into my blackness and accept my blackness and love my blackness there. And then going to a PWI for grad school, it was like I was in a space where people were trying to make me unlearn or not be appreciative of my blackness and all of the things that I had really, really worked hard to kind of establish for myself. Um, my program was created in 1988, and the first black woman will be graduating from the program this upcoming um, winter semester. She's actually defending on August 25th. Shout out to Kayla Miles, I love you so much. 
um, and I'll be the second African-American woman to graduate from the program. So you just see these large disparities in these neuroscience programs or whatever biomedical research program there may be. Or you might have mentors who don't necessarily have cultural competency and they don't know how to talk to you. Um, I've had an experience where a PI would not let me rotate in his lab unless I submitted a diversity supplement. And so my value was attached to that, that money, that NIH money. Um, and so it's been frustrating. It's been difficult, you know, having to code switch and just kind of, um, kind of, just kind of fade into the back and not being able to be my hundred percent authentic self. Um, but now I don't care. Like you're going to get these braids. You're going to get these curls everywhere. Don't reach your hand and touch my hair because they've tried that before. But it's, it's definitely um, unlearning colonialism and loving everything that you have to offer and bring to the table. So that's what um, my experience has been. I kind of want to piggyback off of that because I also went to historically black college, uh, shout out to Fisk University. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of love for HBCUs and that also gets discussed a lot. Um, as far as the relevance, um, I personally believe they're incredibly relevant because just like, like Paige, that's where I learned to love myself, to love my blackness, to love my natural hair. I used to straighten my hair all of the time because that was more acceptable. It was seen as quote unquote more professional. Um, and I've learned that this is who I am and you can you know take it or leave it. Um, and applying that to science is, challenging but so important um especially in my opinion for little black girls to see themselves to really see themselves for who they are and that they don't have to conform to fit into these spaces um i struggled with that heavily just as far as feeling like i needed to change myself in order to be accepted when i first decided to go to graduate school um of course, with like interviews, I was told how to dress, how to wear my hair, how to speak. Um, my voice was too high pitched or too, you know, just too much or I shouldn't be as enthusiastic or, you know, whatever it is. I shouldn't like, let all of my loud personality show. I should be more reserved. And that's just not who I am. Um, it's not who I want to be. And if these spaces can't accept me for who I am, they're the ones that need to change. Hey guys, I'm going to go ahead and agree with like pretty much everyone's experiences. Um, I've, I've seen and experienced some of the same things, um, even within undergrad. Um, I think uh, growing up, I was fortunate enough to have um, computer scientists in my, my home and as my parents were computer scientists and my mom was a computer scientist. So I always grew up knowing that I could be a scientist or an engineer. Um, and I also went to a predominantly, I went to a private school, was predominantly black, um, which spoke a lot about black culture and blackness and black excellence. So it really wasn't until I got to college, I was, it, there was this pushback. Um, so when I went to undergrad, um, I ended up graduating Ohio State as the first black biomedical engineer, um, but it was no easy feat because there are people who like, there were 17 of us who graduated um, as undergrads and people met, with, met outside of me, like having meetings and basically like getting together and studying together. I was left out of that, I was left out of the equation. Um, but then even going to grad school, every degree or every program that I went into, I was told, you don't deserve to be here. You don't have what it takes to be here. And even still in my PhD experience, experience it was so much 
racism and sexism and, you know, dealing with my first two PhD advisors, going through what I went through with that, it was, it was a lot. And I was, I was going to drop out so, so many times. And then all of a sudden, um, as of last year, I transferred schools and I got the validation that I needed because I got the mentorship that I needed to succeed. So I left the school and I left the department. Um, don't ever go to Purdue. Don't, don't ever go there. <laughs> don't ever in your life. Um, but then I found the mentor and the mentorship um, with the research I wanted that I, that I very much so desperately, desperately needed. So um, for folks who are like going through this process, like, please, please, please reach out, have multiple mentors, reach out to people who like are in your shoes because you're not going through it alone. And I think that's like a big thing because I thought that everything that was happening to me was things that were happening to me in a silo and it wasn't. So if you listen to everybody on this podcast and everybody's talking now, they have been through so many things that are very similar to what you're going through. So I think the problem is here, of course, is academia and the fact that we need to change it and what and whatnot, but definitely reach out to people because you're not alone, you're not, you know, and a lot of people are experiencing the same things that you're experiencing. So that's what I had to learn on my own. Yeah, most definitely. hundred percent agree with that. Um, I guess I'll give you more of the European perspective or more of a global perspective, but those problems and everything that everyone else has said are, is very much the same in the UK. Um, I guess one issue is we don't have HBCUs and we also don't have uh, the critical mass in terms of a black population where you can feel that comfort, especially when it comes to academia. So um, my secondary school experience was an interesting one. It was very much a, a culture shock um, because I had been around um, multicultural um, societies for a while and then I went to a grammar school. So that's when we have to do a test. Um, I got into the grammar school and from there I, was, I went to being one of four black kids out of 150 in the year. And in about this, in the school out of about a thousand, there were probably about 30 black kids. And that was a very interesting experience. And I dealt with racism there for the first time. There were classism there too. Um, but that really helped and actually prepared me for what was coming next. Um, because I can tell you for a fact, I would not have been able to deal with academia as it is now had I not had those experiences back then. Um, so when I went to um, university and started studying chemistry, I was one of, again, four black people in the year and I watched my black peers drop out. So one after the other. So year one, there were four of us. By year two, there were three. Um, by year three, it was just me. Uh, and I was the only one that graduated with the masters. So again, you've seen across the board that academia, it doesn't seem to be a place that really retains and looks after um, black students. So by the time I got to my PhD, I was very much prepared for for what was to come next and I think the importance of it, even just hearing or listening to everyone else's experiences with this podcast is that we show people or we kind of demystify what it is to be a black person in academia because it does take resilience but you have the power to in order to get through it but we need to show people that it's going to be hard it's, it's definitely not easy um, but you can use that to your advantage you can grow and you can excel from that too. Tiago, do you have anything that you would want to share? Yeah. Um, so uh, for people who are just listening to this, never seen a picture of the organizers, I am not black. Um, I do have like a wild experience because I am from Brazil. So like I came here seven, 
I don't know what day is today, but it's going to be eight years in a little bit. Um, and I have this like weird cathartic moment when I like became a minority almost like when I was 19. Um, I was raised by a single mom. Um, I was adopted by a single mom. And it was like a very like wild but privileged background. Um, and then I moved to the US and I suddenly I'm not white anymore. I became a Latino, which is wild. Um, it's wild to have like suddenly a new tag attached to you. Um, and now you have to fill everything. Um, I don't know if you've seen this before, but like when you feel demographics, you usually feel a race. And then there's a separate question just for whether you're Hispanic or Latino. Those are like very popular in Florida where I went to undergrad. Um, and you have a lot of like institutional barriers that are like somehow like inexplicable that like inexplicably there. Uh, so there's a lot of grants I can apply to. There's a lot of um, like scholarships, a lot of schools I can apply to. Um, and that's still the case. Like I have grants in the NIH that I can apply to. There's like underrepresented minority um, focus things that I cannot apply to because it is federal money. Um, so every now and then someone sends me like, this is perfect for you. And then you have to see like, oh yeah, it's US citizen only. Um, which is great because it means that people are actually in a, in a way incorporating me into this American culture of like, just you're one of us come through. Um, but then every three months or so I'm reminded that like, no, I'm still an outsider. Been here eight years. Um, a lot of friends, a lot of like community building here, um, basically all my academic career here and still an outsider, like to the institutions and to um, the people who hold the power. Um, so I know it's not the same as other struggles or um, some racially based uh, differences, but it is so wild to still have that issue like in 2020. Thank you so much to all of you for sharing your experiences and your journeys. And I know that many people listening to this podcast well, thank you, because they're also feeling quite isolated and alone in their journeys, which brings me to the reason for why we were all connected. Um, so, Madame Angeline, future doctor here, about a month ago, you had posted something into the Twitter sphere, um, something to the effect of wanting to have a Black in Euro Week. Can you take us back to that day? What motivated you to tweet that out? And um, what were you thinking about? So for me, uh, it's actually funny. I had thought about sending that tweet out and it was just a very simple tweet. It was just, so when are we doing a Black and Neuro week? Um, it was inspired by all of the previous weeks. So there was Black and Astro week and the Black Birders week. And um, there was also a Black Botanist week. And it was just amazing to see the Black community being, you know, so celebrated in all of these different disciplines. Um, and of course, being a neuroscientist, I was really curious to see how many other Black neuroscientists there are um, in the field that I could look up to and connect with. Um, and I felt like Black and Neuro Week would be a fantastic opportunity to do so. I actually made the tweet and deleted it a couple times. <laughs> like I had it in my drafts and I was like, no, I'm not going to send this out. <laughs> or like, no, nobody's going to listen to me. Like, who cares? Um, but when I did, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. It's fine. Like if nobody responds, whatever, at least I tried. Um, it was met with so much love and support and 
honestly, like, I am just so grateful. So many people, like, liked and retweeted. And I think it was Tiago who, like, tagged a bunch of people. He um, tagged Kayla, and he tagged, he tagged Ibotta, and he tagged, like, people were just like, hey, we're doing this. And I was like, great. <laughs> um, so that, that was really lovely. And the way it came about was uh, pretty quick. Like, that same day, um, as we were just like, oh, yeah, like, you know, people volunteered to help organize it. Um, we made a Slack channel and then two days later we had our first general meeting and then by that next day like four days after I sent the tweet out we had the Twitter handle secured we had Instagram handle secured we had like a website going it was just incredible how quick it happened um, but also showed how necessary this was and how much how important it is to so many people I mean I think whirlwind would be a way to describe what's happened really and so for everyone here you you see the tweet or you get tagged in the tweet what was your motivation for for saying i want to invest my time and like what happened maybe walk us through what that was like for you to engage with that tweet because you know angeline i didn't know you before all of this and i'm, I'm assuming that many folks didn't on the organizing team I think to put it mildly, there was a lot of pent up energy from 2020. And when I saw that tweet, like my first instinct, uh, I think I tagged Ubara and Christine, who are also uh, non-black allies. And then I tagged Kayla because I, don't, I didn't know Kayla very much. We were just like joking on Twitter for like a week. Um, I literally just tagged the first people that I knew would be down to help with like big, scary projects. Um, and there was like straight up energy. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't like something coherent of like, I'm going to find these people. No, it was just like, these people work. And like 30 seconds later, um, they all said, yes, they were all like, yes, let's go right now. Um, and I think that came from like the whole year and well, our whole experiences here, um, of just like, I got to do something and like do something that matters. Um, especially after the protests. Um, after seeing so much and like being involved so much, especially when you're in a quarantine or like inside the, like the whole time, um, I think it was just a lot of build up momentum of like, uh, I gotta do something like, even if it's just creating a Twitter handle, like writing, like writing tweets and writing Instagram posts, like something more concrete than staying at home. I will say that um, when I commented under that tweet, uh, I think Angeline had just followed me back on Twitter. I, I didn't have that many followers. And I had, I, I literally was like, yeah, I want to do this. But I never expected um, to have like an, a DM in <laughs> on Twitter, like the very next day from Angeline saying, hey, let's do this thing. Here's the Slack. And I was like, wow. Um, we like, I just immediately found a community of people or a team of people that really knew how to get stuff done. Like they didn't just talk about things like they were efficient. They knew how to get stuff done. They knew they had to do something. And that was so empowering and it gave me energy because I'm definitely a very shy introverted person. Um, I don't think I would have thrust myself into a whole social media movement any other time, but um, yeah, I was just so grateful to have been included in this. Um, like I said, this team is very energizing and I was just so surprised, but also so grateful that it happened so quickly and that we got so much done. 
I was really excited um, that Angeline spoke out. We were just coming off the tale of Black Birders Week, which um, I'd taken a little bit of part in of setting together with everyone. And with that starting, I was like, I wish we could do something in neuro because at this point, like everything had been with like outdoorsy people. And I like to camp and hike and stuff, but I don't know any neuro people here where I live. And I also haven't seen another living person since like March that doesn't work at the store. <laughs> so I don't know when the next time is that I'll be able to actually interact with other people that are um, in the same field or have that same interest as I do. So when I saw that Angeline said that, I was like, man, I've been thinking about this forever. I definitely want to help because I'm the type of person that has a million ideas, but am I going to do them? Probably not. So with everyone in this group being so efficient and reminding me about the Google Docs that I lose every day, sorry everyone for asking you to drop the link all the time, um, but it, it's been great to form this community and to virtually meet all of you. I was so excited. Like, I was so glad that I was on Twitter at the right moment, just because I feel like I always get lost in the sauce on Twitter. Like I never catch all of the good content that comes on there. And so seeing Angeline's tweet, like I immediately contacted her and she welcomed me with open arms and allowed me to join in on the organizing team, which I'm so grateful for. Um, I've been really worried, I think, since you know the one mentor that I have in Cincinnati will be leaving soon because she's graduating. She's been my connect as a black neuroscientist and making me feel welcome and making me feel comfortable. But now I can say I have this incredible um, group of people, black neuroscientists from all across the country, all across the world that are supportive and are loving and are caring and uplifting at all moments. And now I'm not afraid anymore. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you guys. I think for me, Tiago is definitely right. We um, had only been joking on the on Twitter for like a little while. Um, and I was really happy that he tagged me in that tweet and I saw it and it came after um, I had essentially like called out Georgetown University for not doing anything um, or speaking up or helping in terms of uh, the murders of George, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, so I had just spent like three days in a bunch of Zoom meetings with a bunch of like old white professors explaining to them that like the police are bad and that like racism still exists. Um, and it dawned on me in that meeting cause they were like, what's something that we could do? And I was like, you could just hire a black person in the department. That would be like a real good start for me. Cause I'm 28 and I just defended, I just earned my PhD 19 days ago and I'm having to sit here in this room and educate all of you about this thing that is such common sense and common decency to me. And I understand that it's not that way for everybody, um, that it takes learning and growth. But so when I saw Tiago's tag of me in that tweet, I was like, absolutely. This is something that I've always wanted. I've never had a black woman professor, a black woman teacher. Um, I'm mixed race. My mom's not even a black woman. Um, the only black women I have in my life are my Nana and two aunts. I got a family full of 35 men and three women. It's real, 
it's real rough out there, um, but also hilarious sometimes. Um, and so for me, it was a chance to use my voice and my platform and the new three letters after my name to, even if it was only uplift and support and retweet and, you know, post on Instagram about everything, it was a chance for me to do something instead of trying to wait for other people to bring the change that I wanted. Most of the organizers here are based in the U.S. So Shane, you have a perspective on the U.K. side of things and sometimes can often, as a Canadian as well, like I often feel kind of removed from things that are happening in academia in the U.S. So why did you think it was important for you to share your voice and, and be a part of this? Sure. Um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is just how global anti-blackness is and like it doesn't matter which country as long as it's in the west well actually it doesn't have to be in the west but if you look from australia to canada to the uk to france you they all have histories of colonialism um that still pervade uh, our current society today so you still have disparities you still have well even we've seen it with with covid and the lockdown um just how certain populations or certain ethnicities of people have been more affected and you wonder why well we know as scientists that this is not genetic and this is something that is actually socioeconomic and to deal with the people and and how they are living how they have been discriminated against um as a result of just over the years but essentially for me it was about getting involved in that and bringing that uk perspective but also i'm um, just showing that essentially your brothers and your sisters in another country and another part of the world are, are fighting exactly the same fight, fighting exactly the same battle. So as soon as I saw Angeline's um, tweet, I was like, yep, yeah, I'm on board. The UK, I literally tweeted, the UK is on board. Um, <laughs> because there aren't very many of us, um, especially black neuroscientists in the UK. And even just from the organizing that we've done, I've seen just the reluctance of the UK or UK institutions to actually get involved with this conversation. Um, but it's definitely there. There's a history of colonialism. There's a history of slavery. Um, it's funny enough, it's, it's Jamaican independence today. And <laughs> for me, yeah, yeah, 58 years, but I see that in, in my own country's history. And yeah, there's lots of things that need to be talked about. So, Black and Neuro as a global campaign is bringing light to anti-blackness in general is is very, very important. Hey, happy Independence Day. Everyone's snapping and doing like emoji. Yeah, <laughs> hands up there. So something that I think most people will catch on if they read our, our Twitter um, is that we, we quite enjoy working together. And even right now, I'll just expose this. We're having side uh, side conversations here in the chat, uh, making everyone hungry. Um, so here's the thing. In three weeks, what we've accomplished as a team goes far beyond what many institutions or organizations could do or have done. So there has been a website that's been created. There has been a repository of resources and opportunities. There has been mentorship facilitation. There has been a network that has been mobilized of over 300 Black and Euro folks. I mean, the list goes on. In addition to the sponsorships that we have received, we can talk about it for days. So 
how did a group of strangers pull this off? Can someone talk about the mechanics behind this week and why they think it was so successful? All the power goes to all of them. Like waking, I wake up and there's like 20 threads on Slack of, hey, this email happened and this happened and this person wants to donate this much and this is going on. And I'm just like, good morning, guys. Anybody want some coffee? Like what's going on? So they definitely just kept pushing. I've never seen people work so hard while they've also got jobs and schools and theses, thesis, 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 you know, papers to write and stuff. I feel like the reason why this week was so successful is because we did all of the things that we wish our universities would have done for us and for previous generations of Black scientists who didn't have a space um, and often had to create those spaces for them. So um, I feel like we all brought our experiences to the table and we worked hard to ensure that there was a platform and a community for other people who didn't feel as supported. So um, that's just my two cents. I'd like to add to that. I feel like to some degree, every single one of us um, have, like we have worked in environments where we were not supported, where things didn't get done, like Paige mentioned. Um, and I think that we took that and threw it all into Black and Neuro Week's planning because we were like, okay, we're going to do this the right way because no one else has been able <laughs> to get things done before. So as far as mechanics are concerned, you know, we had people who, um, you know, had the energy as soon as they wake up and they're like messaging everyone in the Slack, they're like, okay, this, this, and this needs to get done. We have high functioning people on our team who, you know, they're like taking notes and minutes, detailed action items for everyone, um, for every single Zoom meeting that we had. And I think that's why we were able to get stuff done. Not only were we drawing from our previous experiences working on teams and wanting to do it better with Black and Neuro, but I think it's also the fact that we're all awesome um, and all functional, like highly functional beings. And we're, we know how to get stuff done. I mean, there's a reason why we're here and a reason why we're scientists, right? And um, I don't think it is surprising at all that we were able to pull this off. I personally also want to say that Sunday, that was our closing call. It was very cathartic because everyone shared these lived and shared experiences that we thought we experienced in a silo. But we actually determined and we saw that, oh, we have some of the same experiences dealing with a lot of the isms in academia. So we saw the things that we wanted from our universities, as mentioned earlier, what Paige has said, and we, want, and we made into fruition because it's like, we've been through these things and we don't want other people to deal with these things too, because we know that these things that we've dealt with um, because of our background and because of the mentorship or things that have happened along the way, we've stayed, but not everyone else has that privilege. So I think we saw ourselves and other people. So when we did and we, we shared these experiences, we came together and was like, okay, we have to make this work. This has to be organic because if we drop the ball, it may not happen again like this. This group is mainly composed of Black folks in academia, but a large reason for our success is the allies that we had in our group. Can someone talk about what that allyship has looked like for this organization um, and what they appreciated so much 
about the approach that our allies took, um, especially for for allies listening or for potential allies listening um, who want to take notes on what they can do to support similar organizations or movements. I think what was really nice about it was at the very beginning, and part of the reason why this worked so well is we were all very clear on what our goal and our mission was, and it really was to amplify and highlight Black voices, and everyone was on board with that, including all of the allies. And so because we all you know, knew that this is what we we're doing, it wasn't taking away from us for, from, for them to be there. Um, if anything, their experiences help amplify the things that we were trying to do because they had, you know, unique jobs or unique um, assets and skills that could help us. And so we have allies that, you know, are excellent science communicators, allies who are good with securing funding, um, those who are fantastic in making graphics on Canva and for Instagram and, you know, the best ways to pull together threads. Um, and so by working together, I think that helped. But I think sometimes the trouble with um, certain allies is that they censored their experiences and how they feel about racism or, you know, censoring white guilt and, oh, my God, I can't believe it, instead of censoring the Black voices and the Black people who are experiencing it and amplifying their voices. And so our allies did a really great job of making sure that our voices were amplified and the things that we wanted to accomplish because we know what we want, right? Like we know the things that we want to get done. We know what we wanted to do. Um, we just, you know, needed the help, extra help to get there. And so they did a great job of doing that. And Tiago, being, you know, one of the ally representatives here on this, this call, um, what, what was working in this space? I mean, you're still working in this space, like, um, for you. I think, um, and this might have taken me longer than it should have as a human being, but I realized sometime I think in college that um, you go through like these graphs and you know that like the people that are paid less are usually black women. Um, and it was very clear to me that if a black woman succeeds, I will succeed and I will thrive by definition. Like I will like if the least paid person, if like the person who's being most oppressed by society is thriving, by definition, we all raise. Um, so like, I don't even use the word, like I don't like call myself an ally too much. Um, I like when people do it, because it means like I'm doing something right. Um, but I think all of these things are like very common sense, uh, or they should be at least. Um, it is very clear to me, like it was never a debate that Black, sli that, uh, black Lives Matter. It was never a debate that these things should be discussed. Um, when I joined my diversity committee in the school, in my school, um, I realized that a lot of these things are still like complex ideas in people's heads. Like this, these things are still up to debate. Like, oh, but should we say like this or should we approach like this? And um, I think all of the allies in the group literally just went like, yeah, we all know. Yeah, okay, we get it. Like, um, I also think that I won't say much for them, but like, it seems that we all, like all the allies, also had their own struggles, um, either, either with immigration or with other forms of oppression. Um, and it's not all the same, but I think having been oppressed and having not been in the position of privilege of an old white man, um, you have other things that like talk to you. Um, I think all of it was very, very natural for all the allies. Like we never, we never had like a side chat where we were like policy each other and like, oh, should we talk about this? Should we talk about this? 
um, we're all like very clear on like what we should do and what we should not do. Um, and very clear on our mission, like Angelina said, um, we, we're here to empower people. Before we get to talking about the success of this week, a lot of the, the period of the three weeks of organizing was a trial and error for us. And, and we learned a lot. And part of that was being held accountable by our peers for certain things. And part of that was just being exposed to different perspectives that we, we might not have had um, an emphasis on because of our lived experience. Can we maybe talk about what has been the most salient learning experience of putting this together? And um, what, what are our kind of takeaways from this experience as organizers? I think for me, one of my biggest takeaways um, was really being able to open up and was being able to like open up and free myself to like being vulnerable within our group and bringing up problems without the fear of like retribution or consequences. Um, it's very, in my lived learned experience in life, uh, there have been very few times where I could bring up a problem and not be chastised for it in some way or not have the blame placed on me. So when we did encounter problems, or not even problems, like when things would come up, we would just talk about them in what was an open, safe, and loving form. And that's something that has been missing for me in academia for a really long time, not necessarily like my personal life, but like in the facet of what my job is. Um, it was also, I think, the way that we embrace intersectionality and the diversity of perspectives and opinions really paved the way for everything to go as well as it did. And it was a learning and growing experience for all of us. Um, I don't think I've ever like made a Canva post so quickly in my whole life or like updated to do Google Doc with swiftness that quickly before. Um, and I had to buy more Google Drive storage. So that also was great. I guess from what I've seen from this week is just how much can be done when you're not worried about how people are perceiving you when you're trying to do your work. Um, just because in academia, we always, I don't know, it's sort of like you're having to tiptoe around people, you're worrying about imposter syndrome and just everything apart from your work. But as soon as we came to this group, it was like, okay, we're down to business and we got straight to it. Um, and just the amount that we accomplished, especially in in three weeks before it started, we were regimented, everyone had their roles, everything was in place, as partly down to great leadership by Angeline. Um, but everybody just knew what they were doing and what they were bringing to the table. And it really showed. And I think the one takeaway I get from this is just how much can be done when you're in a comfortable environment. And I guess secondly, that sorry institutions, but you have no excuse now because we've shown you in in three to four weeks just what can be done and there's more to come um you have no excuse with regards to diversity inclusion and putting certain things in place because you know we, we just did it so <laughs> yeah and so we've just wrapped up the week and there's obviously more to come but 
what are some of the most maybe memorable takeaways, some things that really stick out to you in terms of that week? And, and, and I know there's so much to be proud of, but what are some things that make you or that are most salient in terms of things that you're proud of? So the, the best thing for me, and um, it, it's a little bit of a weird thing, but it's all the tears that were shed because they were all happy tears. Like there were so many just happy. I'm so proud to be a part of this. Like, I'm so grateful for this community tears during our women's social. Like we were all just boohoo crying um, during our wrap up meeting, all of the organizers, we were crying and it just, it's because we know that it's so beautiful and so important, the community that we're building. And it's also just incredibly necessary, not just for ourselves now, but also for future generations to be able to connect and to know that they're loved and supported and that we're here for them. Um, A lot of people do feel really alone being, you know, the only one or two black people in their departments or their schools. And that feeling of isolation was just it just disappeared, right? Like we just, we found each other. And honestly, I just think that was the most beautiful thing. One of the things that I really loved, I mean, I loved the entire week, but the, one of the ones that really hit home for me um, and really brought out the little girl in me who just loved curiosity and discovery, but was discouraged from pursuing that was the Skype of Black Neuroscientist. Hearing the comments from those babies um, and just the questions and how inquisitive they were. Like one kid asked, why is my brain called a noodle? And I literally cracked up laughing, but just the space to be able to ask questions like that and not be ashamed or told, why are you asking a stupid question like that? Just being accepted. And um, I feel like, you know, fostering science at a very young age for black and brown children is so important um, because we see such large disparities in these fields because you basically blew out the fuse for that kid when they were maybe five or six, when they showed interest and they showed passion in it. So the Skype of Black Neuroscientists was transformative and we had some really great speakers. Dr. Griffith um, was so bomb. I just loved her and the books and then also seeing parents following up and being like, I bought my kids these books and they loved what you said about neuroscience and they're interested in it. Um, so seeing that on Twitter and the engagement there was just, it was everything to me. I think for me, um, Black Journey to Neuro Day was my favorite. And it goes back really to Angeline's point of um, the way that everybody connected and resonated and shared their stories was something that I didn't expect or like really think about. Um, I shared my story uh, just because I love to hear myself talk and I'm pretty funny. So I thought it was a good idea. Um, And the support and the like other people being like, I felt the same way or experienced the same thing was in like one sense, like heartbreaking because I don't want anybody to have to experience those things that I did but also reassuring in a way that was like, I've helped somebody realize that like they can do this if they need to, um, or if they want to really, um, that you can stay and you're not, you can stay in academia and 
there's a place for you there. And so it really, for me, just built this whole new sense of community. Um, I have like more mentees and I love that. I love talking to people. Um, and it's given me a new perspective on what academia can be, which is essentially what I've always wanted it to be, which is a supportive, inclusive, safe space. I think my favorite part which I guess sounds narcissistic, but I liked doing the panel a lot. It took me out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm not a big talker, and I'm definitely not a big talker uh, in public. So being able to do so and share my experiences was great. And to get the response back from um, people on Twitter that have watched it and to be told that like I helped them was wild so that was just a really good feeling but outside of myself i think i love the black journey to neuro i see all these beautiful melanated people on the timeline and i'm like where were you hiding what happened how come i didn't know that you existed before um so those were my favorite parts so i worked on a lot of the neuro racism material and it was so heavy and so like um honestly like emotionally draining to go through like centuries of oppression um and like see how over and over again scientists have done this like scientists have claimed to be uh neutral and claimed to be objective uh ever since science is science we've been doing this um and seeing how these things ever end because i think we have this historical sense that oh yeah, eugenics was really bad and then it, it was over. And like, no, none of this is over. None of these problems in science are done. They're still very much here. Um, and then seeing like people engage with that and like talk about it and like talk about their own like ways and their research is biased. Um, I think that just like opened up my eyes even more, even though like I've been thinking about this for a while of how science is not apolitical and it will never be apolitical. Science is not objective. Science is not any of this because it's done by humans. It's done by a lot of humans with their own problems, their own uh, colonialism thinkings and their own like biases against black people. Um, it was very eye-opening and very like, kind of like I literally like needed a shower after I finished writing a lot of those threads. And at least we're talking about this and this is open and you have no excuses now um, to not talk about this again. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll jump on that point. And yeah, it was definitely the the interaction, um, the engagement, the fact that we were shining light on quite a few things, um, and some really deep topics. But at the same time, just on Twitter in general, just the way um, the organising committee were interacting with each other, I think that was quite a nice a thing that came out of the week. And it was the fact that we were able to be ourselves and not just when we were on the panels and presenting, you saw us be professional as ever, but then on Twitter, you saw the funny side, you saw us interacting with, with gifts and just being playful and showing that as a scientist or as scientists, we are human, we can be ourselves and we don't have to dim that part of us. And I think that added to just how successful the week was because we were able to not only execute um, on one side with all the events that we did, but we were just being ourselves, our authentic selves. And I think that's what academia needs in general. Um, I agree because uh, a lot of um, people that were like, 
you know, I'm going to participate in Black and Neural, they were people who were representing throughout the diaspora. So it's not just this one view of like Black American culture that we can all kind of look at and like be like, oh, that's Blackness. But like Black neuroscientists kind of came together from like all over the world, from different ages, from different backgrounds, from different cultures. And to me, that was just beautiful because not only did it um, display um, how non-monolithic um, blackness is as a culture, but it, it displayed like how diverse we are as scientists, that we don't fit into this mold of like this old nerdy white guy that may or may not look like Bill Nye. That's not us. Like we are whole multifaceted people. We have goals and and dreams and desires and and we are like more than just scientists but all the things that we um that comprise our identity um gives to our science and gives to us as scientists and i really appreciate that i I can't appreciate that enough i can't really appreciate enough like how many black people i got and like together and saw and witnessed interact with and learning about their backgrounds and who they are and how talented they are. Like that was, that was another thing too, like seeing people with the art display and talking about like them singing and performing and dancing and showing their artwork. Like that was real to me because it showed the world that not only do black scientists exist, but black scientists are multifaceted. So that was like really the most beautiful thing about the whole week. I mean, the impact of this week is incredibly immediate. Uh, I think all of us, but even just seeing the dialogue on the internet about how folks got Twitter for the first time just to participate in this community, which is incredible. Um, People switching majors or or seriously thinking about pursuing a career in neuroscience, people talking about how they have never actually met a Black neuroscientist before and how this has completely changed the way that they feel about the field and, and the support that they can receive. So the immediate impact is clearly there. Now, looking towards the future, of course, we all really need to take a little breather, take a break, take a nap. Um, but what what are your visions for the next the next steps for Black and Neuro? So, for uh, a vision for Black and Neuro um, in the future, I hope to see us become, um, I don't know, sustainable enough so that we can host conferences, um, you know, post-COVID era, because I think it would be so wonderful um, to have all of these folks that we connected with on our online community and and just like meet in person and just be ourselves in person, because I, I, I think that would just make a world of a difference for all of us. I mean, one of my favorite things about Black and Neuro Week was that I could just be myself with the people I was working with. So I think it would be amazing if all of these scientists got together um, for an annual conference that we were all looking forward to um, and just got to be our authentic Black selves. And then, you know, allies are welcome too, but that's what I hope to see. Um, I, I think it would be so beautiful um, and, and then I, I'd also like to see our community grow in the future. I, I, we're pretty large, um, but all of these folks that were inspired by Black and Neuro, I want to see them in the field next year or, the, you know, subsequent years. Um, so that's what I hope for. I 100% second all of that, but also um, we really want to start 
even younger talking to, you know, like black high schoolers and black undergraduates and letting them know about neuro. I know at a lot of HBCUs, you know, neuroscience isn't an option. Um, so a lot of people don't know that this is a field that they can get into. And I think by showing that, showing us and being representation for them, letting them know about the careers that could follow if they choose to pursue this, also like funding opportunities and grants they can apply for and just helping guide them um, could really have a huge impact on the field of neuroscience and getting more black students into it. Um, so I think really connecting with HBCUs, we've talked about possibly using some of the extra funds that we have to make scholarships or travel awards so they can attend some conferences. So everyone please, you know, stay on the lookout for those and hopefully we'll be able to announce them sometime soon. Um, and once COVID is over, of course, <laughs> we could actually have in-person conferences. Um, but I think this is really just the beginning. There's so much more that we're going to do and sustaining this community is a huge part of that. Yeah, I agree with um, everything Angeline and Liesl said. Uh, I hope that it just continues to grow. I hope that Black and Neuro continues to inspire all Black people to pursue neuroscience, to consider it a space for them, a field where they're welcomed and not just welcomed, but cherished and supported and uplifted. Um, I hope that it keeps making my Nana proud, specifically for me, um, and that it brings people as much like teary-eyed happiness and joy as it's brought me in this week every day for the rest of their time in science. Um, I also hope it, it just continues to grow and be a great place. I don't know. All the good things. That's what I want. And t-shirts. I would like a t-shirt, Angeline. We, we still have merch on the, you know, on the come up. So stay tuned for that too. It's going to come. Um, I guess I'd probably just add the final things. Just, it's been touched on before, but it's that legacy. And it's, I guess one thing I'm seeing with Black in Neuro that it's already happening, but I think it's going to continue to happen is that we're really bridging that gap. Um, and it's almost like we've become advocates for our community such that we can actually lift people up or bring people or more people into our science. Um, and I think that's why I just want to see continuing because I, even that's the amount of calls I've had of people saying, yeah, now I'm going to do neuroscience. I'm going to study it. Um, I want to know more about it. The questions that are coming from that, um, that's what we need. And we need that more engagement. And I think we can do that both on a professional level, um, with mentorship and with job opportunities, et cetera, but just in general, inspiring people and to do that long-term is, is something beautiful. And I think. We're, we're capable of doing so. They are most certainly capable, and I'm proud of every single one of them. Thank you to all of the amazing organizers who participated. And of course, we couldn't get all of them on the podcast. It would be sheer chaos because there's so many of us. But we do have bonus material from the episode where we play a fun game to get to know every person who contributed. You don't want to miss it. It will be added to our website and our show notes. So check it out. To learn more about Black and Neuro, to contribute, catch up on the events that week and the ones to come, go to blackandneuro.com or at blackandneuro on Twitter. As always, you can find us on Twitter at signs underscore broads on our website, broadscience.org or on Facebook. We are also anywhere you get your podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, you can like and subscribe if you can, and we appreciate every single review. 
This episode was mixed by Ryan McFarlane in partnership with CKUT 90.3 FM. Elisa and I will be back with more episodes in September. So till then, take care, friends, be kind, and please wear your masks. <laughs>